Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Accidental Activist, presented by Mercedes-Benz. Before each episode this season, as a part of the I Am Mercedes campaign, we'll be profiling different young women named Mercedes who are all chasing big dreams. I am Mercedes and I am from Tampa, Florida. I am 24 years old. I am passionate about my leadership skills, being an advocate for young Black women, and my family and friends. I've been into sports my whole entire life, so I think it is very important for women in sports to be leaders on the field and off the field because you shouldn't want two different types of people in terms of how you play and then who you are off the field. If you're able to make crucial decisions when the times when the game's on the line and then you can transfer it into the real world, you're basically unstoppable. To be connected within the Mercedes-Benz program is a wish come true. Thank you, Mercedes, for sharing your story. I wish you the best as you continue to pursue your passion. And now, on to this week's episode. I had to see journalism as activism. Objectivity, to me, is the downfall of journalism. Every time in American history there has been tremendous progress, whenever there's been a hint that there is about to be a change, there has been tremendous backlash. Senator Barack Obama of Illinois will be the next president of the United States. Donald Trump wins the presidency. That's how we went from Reconstruction to Jim Crow. I'm here to hold you accountable (laughs) for the things that you said. That is my role. I'm in the mercenary phase in my career. (laughs) Silencing of black athletes, is that still as prevalent in your view? LeBron and Kevin, shut up and dribble. Is it still as virulent? Hello, everyone. I'm Aisha Sasei, and welcome back to The Accidental Activist, the show where we discover how an accidental turn of events can spark one's passion to change the world. Today, my guest is journalist and author Jamel Hill. Jamel is known for her unabashed boldness, and that unfiltered honesty has been known to generate both headlines and controversy for the former ESPN anchor with the most notable being her 2017 clash with the White House, following a series of tweets in which she called then-President Trump a white supremacist. Those comments triggered an unimaginable backlash and calls for her to be fired. Yet through it all, Jamel appeared unbothered and unapologetic. And though months later she would eventually choose to leave ESPN, Jamel Hill continues to use her platform to spotlight people and issues that many others would rather see left untouched. So why does she do it? This is just one of the many things we dive into during our conversation, as well as how her difficult upbringing in Detroit shaped her worldview, the reason she considers Donald Trump to be this country's least surprising president, and why she no longer views activism as a dirty word. As you'd expect, Jamel doesn't hold back. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Jamel Hill, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. 
It's so good to have you here. There is so much to dig into how you are one of the the most outspoken and I would say direct journalists and commentators out there today, how you use your platform in meaningful ways, all the work you're doing with the podcast, with your production company, and of course, your memoir, Uphill. But before we get into all of that, before we get into all the good stuff that you're doing, I have a slightly different question, slightly off topic, but I need you to think carefully before you answer because it could impact how I spend my holidays. You and Van Latham had a whole podcast on The Wire, which I haven't seen. So I'm going to, see, I'm going to need you to tell me what I'm missing here. So I think The the (laughs) Wire is the best television drama of all time. It was written by actual journalist, David Simon, who spent many years covering the police for the Baltimore Sun. He's telling the story of an inner city, why it's in decline, why we have these malfunctioning systems because they're all a part of a wider system that just doesn't work for people. So I grew up in inner city Detroit. And whether you're from Detroit, LA, Chicago, New York, any of these cities where you see very similar things, he sort of explains the decline of the American urban city through one series. This is deep. No, it's very deep. Hmm. My advice, get on this this immediately. (laughs) It's never too late with The Wire because it rings even truer today than it did when it came out. Like it was truly ahead of its time. And now I think as we see how decline has impacted America, that this is a city to which this sees something so much wider and broader than just a television series. So that's my pitch for you to All right. watch The Wire. All right. You, <laughs> you, you, you knocked it out of the park. I'm going to watch it. So I, I want to move on and, and actually pull on that thread of Baltimore and Detroit, where you're from, both cities which are bedded in the public imagination negatively for many. Talk to me about Detroit, the city that you are proud of and you love, and the, all of that, the childhood, Detroit as a whole. How did all of that play into your decision to wanting to be a journalist? So I think when you grow up in a city that is in very, in very many ways at least looked at as a forgotten city, as an overlooked city, as a city that doesn't deserve to have access to certain things, that doesn't deserve beautiful things. Detroit once was called the city beautiful. It is now called the murder capital of the United States. Growing up with a sense of injustice that was abound and everywhere around me made me more curious about how that injustice happened. It also made me more vigilant about seeing the accountability for that injustice because there's so many core tenets of journalism. But the two most important and central to journalism are truth and accountability. And I think that growing up, seeing some of the things that I see that I was able to, to see, you understand that there are systems, people, circumstances at play that are meant to undermine progress. And even though I always wanted to write about sports, even in sports that people often uphold as the ultimate meritocracy. And yes, I think that's largely true. I don't think it's 100% an infallible truth that sports is generally a meritocracy. 
All the problems we see show up in sports show up in wider society. One of the reasons I gravitated to sports beyond the competition part of it, beyond the fact that you were seeing extraordinary individuals do extraordinary things, was that through sports, you can actually explain the other things that were happening around the world. The difference is because sports is automatically a mechanism that draws people together, unlike other things that we have, that that to me gave it a purpose to have a wider conversation about things, especially with people who might not ordinarily listen. That's right. However, people want to judge it. There's a difference between if Joe Biden says something versus if LeBron James says something. There's a difference. Right. And so understanding that difference and understanding that athletes, especially black athletes, had an ability to connect to communities differently. It was something that I kind of wanted to be a part of. You wanted to be a part of shining a light and, as you said, contextualizing and shaping narratives. But as a black female choosing sports journalism, you may want it, but it might be a little bit of a harder pill to swallow for others. And that's putting it nicely. (laughs) So talk to me about that. I was a sportscaster. I wouldn't call myself a sports journalist. I wouldn't dare. I was a sportscaster in the UK for three years at Sky Sports News. I hated it. I did it for a job. I'm just being honest. You did it and you loved it. But as I said, not necessarily immediately loved by all. Talk to me about the experience. So I think what you what you hinted at with your own experience is pretty widely true, is that when you're a woman, a black woman in the sports space, most women enter industries that are probably male dominated. There are certainly some exceptions, but most of us have to deal with that. But there's male and then there's male male. Sports mm-hmm. is male male. Time for some football, baby! Play for each other, that's it, man. We flying around, we making money, dominating! Where the texture, the language, everything you're around is not just male, but it's also positioned to be anti-female. Because one of the core tenets of sports for male athletes and for male sports is do everything to prove you're not like women, right? And so you're you're entering this space of that, of that cocoon of maleness and patriarchy. And it could be very isolating. When I first uh, became a columnist at the Orlando Sentinel, this was back in 2005. I was the only black female sports columnist at a daily newspaper in North America. Notice I didn't say just America, North America. Wait, so how do you process that? And does that become a part of how you do your job? It becomes a part of it both intentionally and unintentionally, because intentionally, you know, there is a much different scrutiny for you than it is for other people. Unintentionally, it impacts you because. Even though I'm one out of 305, because that was the number of newspapers at the time in North America, there is also the burden you have to deal with of people looking at you like you don't belong there and you didn't earn your way there. Your diversity pick or whatever. Even though on its face, that is totally counter to the point they're trying to prove. Because if it was just about hiring the first Black woman face that you see, then there would be more of me. I was the only one, which means I had to be exceptional to get there. But that's not 
the vibe that you get when you're in there, and I'm sure you can speak to that, is that every day and at every moment, all the time, you're having to prove to people, both visible and invisible, Mm -hmm. that you deserve and have earned the right to be there. And that's very exhausting because other people don't have to do that. And it begins to impact how you do your job in the sense that if you're in this always in this mode of having to prove it mm-hmm. and always seeking validation, it can impact. And it sows a seed of self-doubt, no matter how confident you are. Yeah, and and that was why early on I always say this, and people think I'm just kidding and trying to be self-deprecating. I was like, oh, I was pretty terrible as a columnist the first six to eight months. <laughs> and the reason I was terrible is because I didn't have confidence in what I'm saying. The reason I didn't have confidence in what I was saying is because I was worried too much about what other people thought about what I was saying. I was worried about the fact that people were whispering that I was a diversity hire and I let it impact the way in which I spoke to truth. So I wasn't very authentic those first six to eight months. And then finally, it just kind of got to a point where I realized that the people who didn't like me, one column wasn't going to convince them to like me. So once I was able to clear those self-doubts out of my mind, it helped me write much, much stronger. And it helped me settle into being myself as somebody who deserved to have authoritative commentary on things. I think that's one of the things that I've always found striking about your work, whether I'm reading it or watching it on various platforms, is the clarity of voice and the certainty of your own position. You've never, from what I've seen, said, this is what my position is gospel or the only way to take it, but this is my position and this is where I stand. And I've always been been struck by that in a place, in a world and in, in, in a country that equivocation and other sideism, both sideism is quite a thing. You have stuck to that that lane of this is what I what I believe. And I think it's it's worth highlighting because it's so rare. Let's talk about sports and politics and the relationship between the two, which is uncomfortable to many people, many white people, let's be honest. They're the ones who seem to take the greatest umbrage to that connection. Your work has highlighted the intersection, the, the inescapable intersection. Can you speak to me about that and, and, and how you view it? What people often overlook, or it's not even they overlook, they just practice willful ignorance is that these issues have always collided against each other. Major League Baseball was integrated by Jackie Robinson in 1947. In the last half of the second inning, Robinson gets the first hit off fours. It's a homer into the left field stand. The Civil Rights Bill was signed into effect in 1964. That thus ended sort of segregation, right? And so you found sports being almost 20 years ahead in terms of getting people to understand right not just the need for integration but equality it really wasn't about integrating it was always about equality and so sports has been a place and much of the reason why I love and have invested in sports where people can see an issue that polarizing at the time and see it differently because they had a great baseball player who suddenly was in this predominantly white league and performing at the level of or outperforming many of his peers. And so it begins to debunk myths about where people see certain people's 
value in our society, being able to be seen fully and wholly human in every space. And so the complete campaign to make it seem like these issues have been separate is just a lie that is based off privilege. I mean, as you said, really, this argument has been mostly proliferated by white America and by white folks. This is what their privilege allows them to do is see sports as something separate. We have never been able to see anything that we do as separate. We simply can't. We can't divorce ourselves from being black (laughs) in anything Mm -hmm. that we do. It's a part of our general condition. It's as natural to us as breathing. So when people say things to me like stick to sports or sports shouldn't have politics or it shouldn't involve race or gender or any queer transgender issues, what you're saying to me is I have the privilege of forgetting these things. Absolutely. Most Mm -hmm. of us who do not fit the white, cis, hetero normative narrative, do not have that privilege. We can't wake up and be like, you know what? Next couple hours, just not going to be black when I walk outside. (laughs) Just not going to be doing that. Knowing at any point the police might roll up on me. So we don't have that luxury. So that's why we see it in everything that we do. And in sports, understanding certain dynamics of sports that you have generally in this space, keeping it to black people, you have black athletes that are lauded for their talent, celebrated for their gifts, entertaining masses with what they can do. But when they leave outside that domain, they treat it like any black person on the street. I do love what what you said about, you know, the the element of privilege in the mix here. People who decide that, you know, sport is purely entertainment and, and separate from the rest of life. You left ESPN months after putting out tweets about Donald Trump calling him a a white supremacist. Eventually, you left ESPN. I know you don't regret those statements. What did that episode tell you about America? Or maybe what surprised you Mm. from that whole imbroglio? (laughs) Uh, It didn't tell me anything different about America. It just further, (laughs) it just, it confirmed (laughs) confirmation is more of the word. It's like, oh, Donald Trump is the least surprising president in American history. Because, and this is you know, something that I wish and hope are conversations taking place in circles of white women. White women historically have voted for whiteness, not for gender. That is a fact. The majority of white people in America have not voted Democratic since Lyndon B. Johnson. Their active choice was we value whiteness more than we value democracy, more than we value gender, more than we value anything else. We want to protect and sustain white privilege. That's what we're voting for. So when you look at the historical trends, Donald Trump is literally the least surprising president ever. The only reason it was so shocking is because of what came before it. Because you had Mm -hmm. the first black president in American history who was credential-wise this man had to be perfect in every single <laughs> in way. every <laughs> single way. Yeah, I mean, based off educational achievements. Then you look at his family and Michelle Obama being the most educated first lady in history. Every time in American history, there has been tremendous progress. There has been tremendous backlash. That's how we went mm-hmm. from Reconstruction to Jim Crow. It was the same principle. With Donald Trump, 
to borrow what a friend of mine, Ta-Nehisi Coates, yeah. has said, and yeah. he wrote it brilliantly in his essay for The Atlantic, is yeah. that Donald Trump was about proving that he could be the least and still get to the same place that somebody Black had to be the most to get to. And when you look at what Donald Trump stood for and what he campaigned off of, these were all things that were very prevalent in the conservative Republican Party long before Donald Trump. There was a guy named Ronald Reagan who basically ran a similar campaign, but he was nicer. But he was the one who even coined the phrase, make America great again. So there's always nothing new under the sun, which is the value of history. Yeah, I think the most fascinating thing about Trump that, and you know, I use that, <laughs> yes, fascinating, is the way he gaslights us and flips narrative. And when you try and hold him to any kind of standard or decorum, it becomes, you're silencing me. It's fascinating to see in real time how it plays out, which brings me to something else, which I need you to weigh in on, Kanye West. What do you make of the Kanye mess? Let's just call it that. What I make of it is that somebody who's a narcissist at heart and that is attached to clearly, as he has publicly said, that he is suffering from some mental illness issues on top of a media who is keen to exploit that and the talking points, the white supremacist talking points that he is espousing on top of the misinformation and all those other things. So it's, it's a collective mess of a very perfectly designed cocktail. And I have no sympathy for Kanye West. Like zero. And none. You don't have, you none. don't have any. I don't have any because while I am sensitive to people who are certainly have mental health issues, everybody I know dealing with the same issues does not immediately use those issues to veer toward the playbook of white supremacy. Like that's not a byproduct of being someone suffering from mental health challenges. So for him to make that leap, it's purposeful, it's willful, and it's intentional. Is that Kanye West wants to feel important and be validated by people who frankly are not people who typically want to be in on our issues or that don't have our community in their best interest. So the validation he's seeking is not from black people. Black people validated him a long time ago. Black people have supported him his entire career. Black people have built a great amount of his wealth. Exactly. So it's not us he's putting on this dog and pony show for, because if it was, there wouldn't be a dog and pony show for it. Because our love for him up until this point has usually been pure and unconditional. So he's seeking something else that we can't give him. What he doesn't understand is that what he's seeking is only going to destroy him. And when he tries to come back to the people who have held him down, it's going to be a lonely path because we're not going to be there. Black people, we're forgiving, though. Time for a quick break. We'll have more of my conversation with Jamel Hill when we come back. Welcome back, everyone. Here's the second half of my conversation with Jamel Hill. And you're right. And I think that's part of the part that we have to assess. You know, we're generally by nature a protectionist community. While we're not a mon monolith, without you and I even having a conversation about it, you telling me about your experience with Sky News, I can already relate to. And I didn't even, you mm -hmm. haven't even told me one incident. 
Right. Mm-hmm. So we we have a shared experience that we all innately understand that we're going through. And because of that, whenever we see a black person who we feel like is being unnecessarily torn down, who's being put in the crosshairs, who's being jumped on by the white establishment, we automatically off instinct extend our protectionism. The part that we have to learn as a community, because we so want to be forgiving and we want to allow people to have their space. Kanye been on these talking points for a minute and we were still buying Mm -hmm. his shoes. So we told people with our actions that what he was saying about us was okay. We didn't draw a line. That does not happen in other communities where a line is drawn with their own people and it's not tolerated. Because of that, everybody else acts accordingly. We ain't set the standard. We as a community need to be able to hold our people accountable without feeling like there's shame in that. And listen, it's not just Kanye. We can talk about R. Kelly. We can talk about Bill, Bill Cosby. Cosby. It's, a talk, long, it's a long list. We can talk about a long list, list of people list that we just don't have a point of no return where there's still the sense of, oh, we, we, we got to give them cover. But to the Kanye point, I don't see white America saying, I don't see much of the loud commentators and the people who, I don't see them shouting, shut up and just sing, shut up and just entertain us in the way for black athletes, it is shut up and stick to sports. Is the silencing of black athletes, is that still as prevalent in your view? Is it still as virulent in in your view? It absolutely is. And I think the nuanced part of that in examining, you know, how black athletes are able to use their voice, you have to look at what they're talking about, what league it is, and what are the financial implications. I still do think a great many athletes are concerned that if they do speak out, it will jeopardize their financial futures. And I think that's a real concern that they have. And some of it depends on what you're talking about. Like an athlete can give to charity all day long. They don't mind them cutting the check because that's just an act. What they don't want you to do is use your influence. The reason Colin Kaepernick is not with the NFL has nothing to do with his ability to play, has everything to do with his ability to lead. Out of that protest by Colin Kaepernick, 49ers quarterback knelt instead of standing during the national anthem at last night's game. He was not alone. They do not want somebody like that in a NFL locker room where they're trying to preach conformity, listening to your owner and your coach. And here you have someone who stepped outside all of those systems to make sure that people understood the conditions in which black people were living in. They do not want that. And so it's the influence of what these gestures create where suddenly you have players and people asking different kinds of questions, holding them accountable in different kinds of ways. And they don't want that. That is why black athletes are silenced. And I think the reason they went as far as they did to make an example of someone like Colin Kaepernick is so the rest of them could see this is what waits for you. If you dare if you, yeah, publicly yeah. challenge us. And to that point, actually, about that, it is quite clear. You know, I asked the question, are they still being silenced? If they weren't being silenced, Colin Kaepernick would be playing. That was the other thing, too, is that one of the more disappointing aspects 
was that the players didn't stand with him. Some players did, but as a body, they should have stood with him. And why is that? Why is there such an acute difference between the NBA, WNBA, and the NFL? Okay, so let's take the WNBA, for example. You're dealing with female athletes who have had to fight for respect and equity at every turn in their career, at every level. That's all they've done. Since elementary school, since whenever they started playing, they've had to deal with inconsistent, unfair, inequitable treatment. They're used to speaking up. It's their love language because <laughs> they have to do it all the time. You get to the NBA. The NBA is a player's league, financially structured to be a player's league. One player can change the entire fortune of a franchise. When you have players individually who are able to wield so much power, they're more empowered to speak their truth. It also helps when your best players in the league are also your most vocal players. LeBron James is very vocal. He makes the most money. Steph Curry. Steph Curry. Like they're all very vocal because they've changed the entire complexion of cities by themselves. Franchises. They made people billionaires several times over. They've made cities have influxes of millions in cash by their very presence. And they're very aware of that power and they use it. The NFL is a sport of conformity. Football by its nature is. You have to have all players understanding that they have to sacrifice something that's bigger than them. The NFL career lifespan is not very long. It's an average of three to five years. They have a very limited, finite window to make money and to be a professional. They're very aware of that. The owners use that to their advantage. So because of the financial leverage that the owners have over them, that makes them much more reluctant to join in on causes that could jeopardize the limited window that they feel like that they have in the NFL. You may not be at ESPN anymore, but you continue to use your platform to write about these issues, to talk about these issues, these inequities. Why is that so important to you? Why do you continue to use your voice in this way? I guess going back to when I made the decision to be a journalist, I'm not saying journalism is the only profession in which you feel as if your personality fuses with what are the core beliefs in in that profession. But it's one of the highest where you do. I mean, I decided to do this under the assumption I would be broke (laughs) because (laughs) I thought I would be doing good if I ever made 50,000 a year. And Mm -hmm. I was committed to a bigger ideal. I think most people who speak up about injustice, who want to be a voice, who are active and on the front lines is because you're believing and walking by faith that you can make something better. And as corny as it, as hokey as it sounds, you have to believe in the promise of something. If you don't believe in the promise of it, it's sort of like, why are you here? With this country in particular, I think Black people are the greatest examples of that. We believe the brochure of America. The brochure of America says that we deserve equality, freedom, and liberation. We bought it. And we are the reason that we're going to hold America to it. I mean, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who, as you know, was the architect behind the 1619 Project, she said something in an interview to me that I've never forgotten. And she said that Black people are the most inconvenient people in this country. 
We're inconvenient <laughs> because we actually are going to hold America to what they said. You know, if it's anything, black people going to remind you about what you said. <laughs> okay. Again and again. We're going to bring the receipts. Again. We're going to bring the receipts. I want to see the receipts. <laughs> the receipt is, you see this constitution? You see what you promised us in the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments? Here are the receipts. We're waiting. If we have to drag this country to being its best self because we've invested too much in building it to desert it. I very much fall into that line of thinking despite at times when moments where I wake up and say, I am in an abusive relationship with a country right now. <laughs> but I believe that there is promise that will be there that's worth fighting for. And it would be disrespectful to our ancestors, to me, to not believe in it because I'm living a much better life than somebody like Harriet Tubman could have ever imagined. And if Harriet never got tired, what do I look like getting tired? I don't. And I have much more resources than her. That's what Jesse Williams says all the time. Like, how dare you even begin to talk about being tired when you think about what our ancestors went through? Um, where do you stand in relation to activism with, when you talk about that hope and that fight? Where do you stand in relation to that? Because as a journalist, but sometimes I've heard you describe yourself as a former journalist. I was <laughs> laughing to myself last night. I was like, she's a lapsed journalist. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a, I play a journalism like here and there. But no, uh, <laughs> this is the way that I had to see it. I had to see journalism as activism. And I know people mm -hmm. have it in their mind thinking that journalists are supposed to be fair and accurate. Objectivity to me is the downfall of journalism. Objectivity means that everything deserves a counter argument and everything does not. Everything doesn't deserve both sides. The whole essential component of journalism is truth. And the truth is going to point to one direction sometimes. And we have to be okay with accepting that. So the work to me is the activism, right? Because Journalists are supposed to be the watchdogs of society. If you're a watchdog, you're not neutral. You know why? Because you're going to bite somebody who's stepping out of line, right? Okay, that's part of the deal. So this whole, you got to be objective. I was like, that's not in the language. Ida B. Wells was not objective. Lynching was wrong and she wrote about it. That's not an objective position. It's the truth. So this whole idea that we shouldn't say anything and we should stay out of it is a lie. It's our job to be involved. Through that is where the activism lies. People have tried to convince the populace, especially as it relates to journalism, that activism is a, a naughty word or a dirty word and journalism mm -hmm. shouldn't be mm -hmm. connected to activism. And I choose to now look at it differently and say, well, if we're not being active in challenging power structures, authority, holding them accountable, what are we here for? We're literally abandoning the whole reason why many of us did this. Agreed. You take this pursuit of truth and now you transplant it to a memoir. Why? Because this is not an easy, this is not, you're, this is not an easy one. Why do this? Why put your truth out there and open yourself up to well, everything that comes with it? Well, originally, I did not want to do this. 
my heart of hearts, despite the fact that this memoir is out, I wanted to be a fiction writer. I still want to be a fiction writer and I still will be. And the motivation behind doing it initially was the fact that the money was there, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, it was. No lies here. No so lies I love here. It, it no was. Lies here. It was. And once my literary agency agent, uh, David Larabelle, convinced me that, you know, you have to tell your story. And as he said to me, don't you want to be in control of your own story? Mm-hmm. You don't want someone mm-hmm. else to tell this story. And especially given what your profession is, what your life's work is, you absolutely don't. So why would you leave that in the hands of somebody else? And he was right. I don't want anybody else telling this story but me. And given some of the sensitive topics I discuss, the depth of vulnerability in this book, I could not ever leave that in somebody else's hands. What will surprise people from reading this book? Most people know me in the commentary space at this point. They know me as a journalist. They know me as somebody who used to be at ESPN. They know me as somebody who once got in the crosshairs of the president. They have no idea how I got here, what happened. A lot of the unpleasant things I had to experience in my childhood. All of this didn't come out of nowhere. It wasn't like I just woke up and I was suddenly at ESPN. There was a long, arduous exhausting path that led to that and so I think they're going to be surprised by my background and one of the reasons why I thought it was important once I was on this process to write a book important to be as transparent as possible is that I realize there's a lot of shame over certain issues that a lot of us experience we have it in our mind what a victim looks like what a survivor looks like what somebody who has had the experience of having um, addicts as parents, which I did. I talked about my abortion in this book because we have it in our mind about who gets an abortion and who has access to a, an abortion and who deserves. And what's a legitimate reason. And what's a an legitimate reason. Person. Exactly. So we have all these preconceived notions, not understanding that in your circle of friends, somebody's probably had an abortion or somebody's paid for one. All these things that you tend to judge and have these very strong opinions about from far away. There are people in your circle hiding things from you because they perceive that you're not someone they can talk to about these things. And so I believe transparency creates empathy. And by sharing so much of what I've lived through and what I've experienced, I'm hoping to create empathy for the people who are not in my position. Because if you can create empathy for me, Based off what you think I've experienced, you should do it for your neighbor. You should do it for that girl you went to school with or that ex-girlfriend you had or whatever is your circumstance. You should be able to do the same thing for them. And so that's why as I got into the process, it became really important to me to tell the story a very specific way. I think um, one of my greatest takeaways is that from the leaving of ESPN to the starting of Unbothered, your podcast, to the creation of the podcast network, to this memoir that's now out, you've demonstrated your understanding and your embracing of your own voice and your own power. And I know that that's not something that happened overnight. It's never that way. But what do you say to other women, particularly Black women, who are not quite there yet? What I would say is that be, 
be kind and gentle to yourself because I think we do have a tendency to feel like we should have so much figured out when we're still in the learning and ideating phase. The voice I have now is not the voice I had in my 20s. It's not the voice I even had in my 30s. It's not the voice I had five years ago. And so if you understand that it's not supposed to be a finite moment where you say, oh, I got my voice. Here it is. Actually, you're adding to your voice all the time based off what you've experienced, based off how you are able to create newer boundaries. Like in real time, your development is happening. So you can't ever put this unrealistic expectation on yourself is that you're going to wake up one day, have it all figured out, have a voice, be able to project that, be able to in white spaces, check people who need to be checked. Mm -mm. You will have to go through some things. You will have to lose some battles. You will have to, as I like to call it, let some fish swim by, meaning that there's going to be some that you don't even pick up until you get to a point where you have enough leverage, enough confidence, enough live experience to say, now I've gotten to the point where my default mentality is what you're not going to do is. When you get there, you will know it, <laughs> okay? Because the things that used to bother you won't bother you anymore. And for that matter, you won't always be living for other people's validation or their acceptance. And so I reached that point in part because of some of the things I went through at ESPN to where I realized that good soldier is only going to work for so long. At some point, you have to be a mercenary. And so now I'm in the mercenary phase of my career. <laughs> and it feels, <laughs> it feels good. And, and understanding that the added responsibility that you carry is that when you get to that point of being unbothered, to borrow off the name of my podcast and the network for Black women I'm, I'm creating with Spotify, it's like when you actually reach that point, you will go harder because it's not just about you. You're trying to lay a forged path for every woman, every black woman behind you, every black person behind you. If I light them up enough, the next time another black person comes through who doesn't have my agency, they'll think twice. There were points in my career where it was about getting through the door. I'm past that. I'm kicking through the door. And when I come in there, if I'm the only one in there that looks like me, the whole room got to go. I'm not in here to... <laughs> Kindly walk white people through the ways of like understanding institutional racism. I'm not handholding. I'm not doing none of that. Right. At this point, we got enough information. We've had enough of these talks where any reason on your part to not do better in terms of inclusion or diversity or just seeking us out, period, is willful. You already know what the problem is. I can't handhold you through everything. You got to bring something to the table that lets me know you're committed. I am not here to be your wise and spiritual Negro. I'm here to hold you accountable <laughs> for the things that you said that you were going to do. That is my role because it's not about me. But as I said, it's about every black person that comes through this door after me. Jamal Hill is not your Negro Yoda. I am that not your not Negro Yoda. Is. Not here. Not here for that. <laughs> I am not your Negro whisperer. Like none of that. <laughs> That's not me. <laughs> That's too exhausting. It's you like got the wrong one. You got the wrong one. Stop asking black people to do that. Like we, mm -mm, no, we done. We done with that. <laughs> on those wise words, 
We're going to leave it there, but Jamal, I just want to say thank you. Thank you again for the clarity, for the courage, and for inspiring so many of us. It was such a pleasure speaking to you today, and congratulations on the book, Jamal Hill. Thank you. Thank you for everything. I appreciated the conversation. Jamel's forthright opinions have resulted in some viewing her in a negative light. But she refuses to let personal attacks or the label of being an angry black woman get to her. I find her ability to stick to her beliefs in order to call out the bullshit truly admirable. She didn't allow ESPN to silence her, and she continues to call out those who are trying to silence black athletes. I have to admit, though, that I was a little apprehensive before I sat down with Jamel, because truthfully, speaking to journalists about activism can be tricky. Many in the profession abide by the principle of not picking a side or stating their position on an issue. They pride themselves on being neutral. Jamel, on the other hand, much like myself, has decided that certain issues demand a different approach. Some things are just wrong and need to be called out as such. This calling out is a critical part of activism. And while not every journalist feels comfortable with drawing a direct line between their work and the fight for change, those who aren't simply neutral observers should be applauded. Such a position will likely put them at odds with most colleagues and various sections of society. But let me ask you this. Given the current state of the world and the multitude of issues that we're facing, can any of us, especially those with a platform, really afford to stay silent? You can read more about Jamel Hill's journey in her memoir, Uphill, available now. Thank you so much to all our listeners and thank you to our season sponsor, Mercedes-Benz. As always, check out the show notes for resources and learning materials from our guests. Please take time to rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Apple Podcasts. Follow me at Aisha Sasay on Twitter and on Instagram at I am Aisha Sasay. The Accidental Activist is a Wonder Media Network production. Executive producers are Jenny Kaplan and me, Aisha Sasay. Our producers are Brittany Martinez, Taylor Williamson, and Chelsea Daniel. Our editor is Liz Smith, and our production assistant is Abby Delp. Guest booking by Mary Hollis Williams of Good Talent Lodge, and special thanks to Arella Productions. Take care, everyone. Until the next time, bye for now.